ruined name for 2,800 years. It's a name that nobody delights to take up on their lips or carry in their hearts. When it comes time for families to pick out baby names from the Bible, no one ever picks out Gomer for a girl. Mary, or Rebecca, or Hannah, or Sarah, maybe, but not Gomer. Gomer was a prostitute. It would be a cruel name for a newborn because it's a grim forecast. And you never hear of some boy going off to Bible college or church camp and meeting a girl named Gomer and falling for her and bringing her home to introduce her to mom and dad. No one ever proposes to a girl named Gomer. No one ever plans a wedding with a girl named Gomer. That never happens, and it never happens because the name Gomer isn't literally translated to mean these things, but it's forever joined to this reputation. One who breaks the heart of her husband and goes missing for days and loses herself in the beds of other lovers. No one has wanted to wear this name since the middle of the 8th century. Now I'll tell you, if this young couple came into my office, if Hosea and Gomer showed up for premarital counseling, no way would I marry them. I'd tell Hosea to run. This girl is going to break your heart, and you can't marry her. It will be a disaster. She's not going to leave you once She'll leave you over and over. I would do my best to convince Hosea he should not marry her. And yet, God told Hosea, reserve the church and order a cake and buy her a dress and make it a white one, even though she's going to throw it in the gutter. And you'll pick it up and bury your face in it and stain it with your tears. The Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom. It's the kind of arranged marriage that puts a knot in your stomach. And then it gets worse. Start a family. Have children. Have children of whoredom. And when you have a son, name him Jezreel. Now, the name Jezreel means nothing to you, I'm sure, but it would be like having a son and naming him Auschwitz, or Rwanda, or Bosnia, or Mylay. Jezreel was a city in the northern half of the divided kingdom, and some 100 years before Hosea's prophecy, it was the site of a bloodbath committed by Israel's king, King Jehu. He massacred the townspeople of Jezreel. So, why is Israel being judged for this 100 years later? Because the people of the surrounding cities didn't stand up to the king. And the successors of the king never denounced or repented of the action. And the incident at Jezreel shows that Israel's heart is thick and clogged with trickery and butchery and treachery and expedient violence had just become an accepted way of life. To name a son Jezreel is like someone dragging the skeletons out of your closet with 
names and dates and details attached so that your heart stutters and your face flushes hot. And God confronts Israel for its sin by telling the prophet, have a son and name him Massacre. And it gets worse. Two more children are on the way. But verse 3 tells us Jezreel was Hosea's son. Gomer conceived and bore Hosea's son, the verse says. These other two have strangers for fathers. And Gomer doesn't even know who the fathers are. Could be anyone. They don't belong to the prophet, but they're his now. And in verse 6, a daughter is born. And he names her Lo-Ruhamah, which means no mercy or probably better translated, no pity. Because how do you pity someone who rubs your nose in it every time you look at her? And the next child is born, another son, whose name is even more graphic, Lo-Ami, not my people. Because that pretty well sums it up. Children not belonging to Hosea, not resembling him or looking like him at all. So, First, we have a wedding announcement that comes in the mail. The prophet Hosea kindly requests your attendance, celebrating his marriage to a prostitute. And then, three birth announcements in rapid succession. We're pleased to announce the births of massacre and no mercy and not even mine. This is the family none of us would want. It's a heartbreaking family portrait. Why is this here? And why, why are we trudging through it? Because it's God's family portrait. And he says it in verse 2. Listen, prophet. My servant. I want you to do this heartbreaking thing to show that I'm heartbroken. I want you to do this to show that I've married a prostitute people who abandoned and forsaken me. And this people bears to me children who are shameful and pitiable and not even mine. If this family lived next door to you, you wouldn't invite them over for dinner. And you wouldn't schedule play dates with them. And you'd probably keep your curtains drawn And you'd avoid eye contact in the yard and in the driveway. And this family is us. The unwanted family is God's people. And that's the point of verse 2. A couple of years ago, we took a family photograph to send out as a Christmas card. And this photo came out unbelievably well. We don't consider ourselves all that photogenic. Our smiles are always plastic. And our posture is awkward and bent and forced. And I do this strange thing with my head where I cock it to one side and I give myself three or four chins. The photographs never come out right. But this one, this one came out well. This was an image of the family we always wished we could be. And it was a unanimous family vote. Send that one out because there will never be another one like it. We'll never look this good again. A friend got it in the mail and phoned up at Christmas and said, Well, it's official. 
You're in the running for perfect family. But the photograph lied. And we lied, sending it. You wouldn't want to see our family as we are. You wouldn't want to be part of our family. And the four of us together, not just Jennifer and me, but our children too, we see our sin and our brokenness and how we hurt each other with it. And we don't want our family. And over the last three weeks, we have spent days crying over what we are as a family. Who, who would want us? We could live at Hosea's house and fit right in. But the pain and the dramatic tension of the book is still piercing, isn't it? Why would God command for Hosea this life? Who would want a wife like this? Who would want children like this? Who would want a family like this? Only one named Hosea. This is the perfect family for one named Hosea. Hosea is a version of the name Joshua. And Joshua, as that name is handed down through the centuries, and it appears in the New Testament, it's slightly adjusted. By the time we get to the New Testament, the name Joshua shows up as Yeshua. And Yeshua in its Greek version, which is the language the New Testament was written in, the Greek version of Yeshua comes out as Jesus. The name Hosea is an early version of the name Jesus. Every derivation of that name comes from the same root word, which means to save. Hosea means saving one. Now, that's not just a happy coincidence. What I want you to remember and remind yourself of every week we're together, reading through this difficult, painful, heartbreaking story, is Hosea is meant to be a picture of Jesus. Hosea the prophet is very deliberately given to us as a picture of Jesus. That's what keeps this whole thing from going to the dogs. The good news is Hosea fills up this book. This is saving one's story. That's why it's named after him and it's not named Gomer. And it's not named Massacre or No Pity or Not My People. This isn't a book about our sin alone. That would be absolute torture. This is a book about the great lengths Jesus goes to save us from our sins. And that's what makes it the good news. And not just a gritty, depressing script for a Showtime original movie. What exactly is Jesus doing in His birth? His sentence to walk the earth and never fit. And what exactly is Jesus doing in his suffering and his dying stretched out on a cross of rejection? And what exactly is Jesus doing when he pushes his way out of a sealed and guarded tomb? He's doing exactly the same thing Hosea is doing. Jesus is taking to himself the wrong girl. Only... In his redeeming arms, the wrong girl isn't the wrong girl, and he calls her wife. 
Jesus is doing exactly what we see Hosea doing with his crooked, gnarled family tree. He's taking for himself cursed children. But in his redeeming arms, the curse is broken. And they're the children he's always wanted and not the children he can't bear to look at. The gospel is, in the love of Jesus... The unwanted family is made the wanted family. If you're impressive and extraordinary and strong, or if you're smart and talented and influential and powerful and self-made, if you're beautiful and appealing, if you're always right and always enviable, you don't need Jesus. You'll be fine without Him if... You truly are all those things. But if you're not, if you're regrettable, if you're embarrassing and indiscreet, if you're a failure and sometimes a disaster and sometimes a monster and sometimes unlovely and unlovable and always guilty as sin... And Jesus came for you, and he wrote this book for you. You're the one he is reaching out for with redeeming love. And all these things that make you legitimately unwanted, he sees through them, and he pushes past them with the long reach of his atoning sacrifice, with his forgiveness, with his righteousness, with his renewal. You know how when the sprinkler heads break on the front lawn and there's a geyser of water that spews into the air and into the street and sometimes it even seeps into your house. Well, for my family, our sin has been like that recently. We don't know why exactly, but it's been geysers of sin with us, soaking and staining and rotting everything. And one night after... A very bad afternoon, my daughter wrote me a note. We use notes when talking doesn't work. And she left it for me to find. And she was brutally honest. And I'm not going to soften it for you. So if you don't want to hear, you need to plug your ears. But she wrote, Dear Dad, I'm sorry I suck as a daughter. So I wrote her back, and I left the note for her to find the next day, and I was brutally honest, and I'm not going to soften this for you either, so if you need to make yourself deaf, now is the time. And I wrote, the truth is, I suck as a dad. Now here's the softness for the both of us. In that moment of shared confession and lament and repentance, we weren't just two sinners, two monsters, two failures. We were two unwanted people, wanted by Jesus, and in His wanting, we have our only healing 
And that's just it. This is where gospel change comes from. The power and the hunger and the freedom for a revolution on the interior life that spills out to the exterior life as well. To know how unwanted we make ourselves and then to have Jesus, the true Hosea, wanting us so deeply that He stands in the courtroom of heaven and He's declared guilty for us. He's pointed at and our names and crimes are read out. And then He stands in that same courtroom before that same bench and He's declared righteous for us. This time, we're pointed at and His name and His obedience and His perfections are read out. To be wanted like that, to have guilt made impermanent and grace made permanent, that has to make something melt inside of us. The hard, high walls we build to keep love out have to crumble. Something dead and heavy like a rock has to come alive and beat with vital signs and glow warm inside of us. To know you are wanted, that has to change the way we speak. It has to change the way we move and what we chase after. It has to change the way we either judge or envy others continually. The way we complain and we don't believe God is good and loving toward us. The way we're impatient and intolerant of His mysterious but perfect ways with us. The way we're always fearful and anxious and despairing. The way we're always controlling. The way we're always nervously keeping the rules. Or always carrying around our guilt and trying to do penance and punish it out of ourselves. The way we're opportunistic and self-promoting and ambitious and dismissive. And the way we're constantly looking for cheap thrills. Because deep satisfaction that pictures the gospel can't possibly be available to us. But all of these ways are just multiple ways of saying the one same thing. Deep down, I believe that I'm unwanted. Deep down, nobody could want me. And Jesus loves to overturn all of that. Somehow, we we never read down as far as verse 10, or we never read it to full impact. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, you are children of the living God. Your names will be changed, so say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received pity, you have received mercy. I think all that Hosea gives us here solves for us a long-standing mystery. What's the difference between maturity and immaturity? We know maturity is something we're to have and something we're to want, but what is it exactly and how do you grasp it? Maturity, very simply, is believing that our unwantedness is put away in Christ and we're new creations in His wanting. Here's the same thing said more simply. Maturity is knowing we're wanted and living that way. Knowing we're wanted and giving ourselves over to it. So in other words, how would a wanted person live? 
This is what it would look like. Instead of running away from the one who loves you, you would run into those ready and waiting arms. In the places where we are weak and needy and fearful, the places where we live and the places where we're tempted to panic and throw everything that we believe and know away altogether, in those places, instead of running away from the gospel, we would run to the gospel find our safety and comfort there. And on the other hand, immaturity is running around in all of our whorish and shameful and cursed ways, thinking we can get away with it. No one expects any different from us. Or I need to scavenge and scrape and scheme because no one will ever love me enough to give himself fully for my needs, or no one will ever love me enough to call me to more. But those are the ways of the unwanted, not the ways of those whose unwantedness has been overcome. Those are not the ways of those who have been loved by a Hosea. I think it also shows us what mature ministry looks like. Not just maturity for ourselves, but pooled maturity, shared corporate maturity. How we would live together and minister in the name of Jesus together. At the beginning of verse 10, we have God's evangelistic promise to Abraham restated. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea which cannot be measured or numbered. That means Jews and Gentiles will be loved in the wanting of Christ and many will be redeemed. They'll be numberless, the verse says. So the question is, how does a church impact a culture that looks more and more like Gomer every day, running away from the lover and giving herself into all kinds of illicit affairs? And how does a church have an effective ministry in a city, not a busy ministry, but an effective ministry? And how do ordinary Christians minister powerfully to their neighbors? It's not by being high profile. It's not by being impressive or successful or hip. We're having an endless array of programs. And it's not by having a nearly worshipped personality in the pulpit or by being smart and talented and gifted and always quick with the right answers, the perfect combinations of words and sharp, inarguable insights. None of that will work. It's by having one message and refusing to veer from it even if you can't be eloquent with it. And the message is, Hosea has come so that Gomer and her children will be loved. The unwanted family is wanted. The unwanted family has a lover who wants it. Now that will win the hearts of many who would never have dreamed that love could reach down so far to find them. If you're not a regular worshiper, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you would call yourself a skeptic, somebody standing on the outside and looking in with a lot of objections, 
and a lot of questions. Still, there's this for you from this strange book about a prophet who marries a prostitute. Are you unwanted? Or are you wanted, but you know you're wanted for all the wrong reasons, and that hurts? All of that can change, but you need to spend time with Jesus. And if you don't know how to do that, I'll help. If you don't know how to spend time with Jesus, just about anybody in this theater can help you. Stop and ask someone. Come up and find me after the service. But you need to feel what it is to be unwanted and have that overcome in the love of someone like our Jesus. I once saw Hosea turn up at a yard sale. It was the perfect place for Hosea to come parading his gospel. We were hosting this yard sale with other families, and about mid-morning, the young daughter of one of the host families came out of the house to look at all the pieces that were being sold, and she made her way up and down the aisles, the rows of blankets and tables piled with dishes and cups and dusty books and rusty tools and used toys. And suddenly, this little girl yells out, Hey, that's mine! And then she said, So is that! And then she said, Hey, this whole table of stuff is mine! We can't sell this, it belongs to me! Her mother came rushing over and tried to reason with her. Sweetheart, you don't want that. That's just junk. No, it's not. It's mine. Please, Mommy, can't we take it back? No, we're not taking it back. Fine, she said. She marched over to the table with the cash box, and she announced to the adult working it, I'd like to buy that whole table please. Now, it's far too easy to read our world and ourselves in the book of Hosea like that mother at the yard sale. We're all just secondhand junk, broken down with sin no one would ever want. But the gospel calls us to read our world and ourselves and the book of Hosea like that little redeemer girl. Jesus wants the unwanted. And He has never not wanted them. And that's what makes this a good news book. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, I know all the things that legitimately make me unwanted, and I can't imagine what it is in You. has decided in mysterious sovereignty to love me and to give you righteousness and your death and your rising. All to wrap me, the wrong one, in your arms and say, no, you're not the wrong one. You're the right one. By my work, by my ability, by my choosing. I can't imagine why you would do that with any of us here. But you do. And we are the bride that no one would want. 
We have Christ the glorious groom, and that is our celebration. We have no beauty of our own. We only have the beauty that is given to us in your love and redemption, in your grace and renewal and restoration. Give to us this kind of maturity as well and help us to see that we're to live as those who are wanted. No need to run. Instead, now we can do the thing that our hearts are most nervous about. We can turn and run into the arms of the great gospel lover, and we don't have to run away from him. And in your wanting, Lord Jesus, change us. Make all those dead, withered, stifled, stagnant parts of us come alive. All the thorny, dried, dead branches in us, make them thick and lush with gospel signs and gospel fruit. If you'll do all of these things, we won't boast in ourselves. Instead, we'll tell anyone who will hear us tell it. It's not me. It's my groom. It's Jesus, the one who has loved me in ways that are so mysterious, so perfect. I'm not even sure I can explain it well at all. But listen and I'll tell you. Give to us that love and allow us to know the joys of the unwanted made into the wanted. For all of these things, we will give you thanks. And we pray them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.